What makes the child tax credit so special? I would call the expanded child tax credit really revolutionary in American social welfare policy. And the reason simply is universality. It was part of the $1.9 trillion COVID relief package. It's a, a lot of money in working people's pockets. And I think we all need to work hard to ensure that it continues, that it becomes a permanent benefit for families. From the home offices of Civic Ventures in downtown Seattle, this is Pitchfork Economics with Nick Hanauer, the best place to get the truth about who gets what and why. I'm Nick Hanauer, founder of Civic Ventures. I'm David Goldstein, senior fellow at Civic Ventures. Big news recently, Nick, in July, the first checks went out to families with children from the expanded federal child tax credit. It's a, a lot of money in working people's pockets. Uh, it was part of the $1.9 trillion COVID relief package that President Biden signed in March, and it has extended and expanded these credits uh, for another year. They, they had been part of the original COVID relief. And it's, as I said, it's a, it's a lot of money uh, before the expansions. Families provided with up to $2,000 per child under 17. Now it's $3,600 for each child under six and $3,000 for each child under 18. And uh, it looks like it's making a difference already. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and the estimates predict the payments could cut child poverty by nearly 50%, which is amazing. Uh, and, uh, and that's a lot of children. It is a lot of children. You know, in the U.S. today, one in seven children live below the official poverty line. Uh, so as you say, it's a lot of children. And two thirds of people now receive monthly benefit checks, which is quite extraordinary. I mean, I think that the thing that's really great about the child tax credit uh, otherwise known as the CTC, uh, is that it is true centrism in the sense that it's a benefit, it's a universal benefit, you know, aimed at the majority of citizens. And, you know, it's a it's a general welfare benefit rather than a poor person's benefit, which makes it more universal and ideally more supported. I've always found it odd how that word welfare, which is a good thing, we want to improve welfare. <laughs> Uh, has been, was turned into a bad word. Uh, you know, uh, President Clinton uh, famously uh, said, uh, you know, with his reforms, how we've ended welfare as you know it, which effectively meant that we went from 68% of families with children who were living in poverty receiving some federal benefits down to only 28%. And now we're almost back to where we were before Clinton ended welfare as we knew it in the mid 90s and yeah. replaced it with that incredibly stingy, punitive, and difficult to apply for system. Yeah. This is a really significant step for the federal government. It's clearly going to really significantly impact the lives of tens of millions of people and may reshape 
how we think about the role that government can play in providing people a decent life. And, you know, as such, I think it's really, it's really worth understanding at a deeper level and exploring. And to do that, we have an amazing expert with us. Wendy Bach is a professor of law at the University of Tennessee at Knoxville, and she's a nationally recognized expert in poverty law and has dedicated her life to representing children and families in poor communities. And uh, she's going to talk us through precisely what uh, this new benefit does and why it's a good thing and why we should hope to make it last for a very long time. Hi, my name is Wendy Bach. I'm a professor of law at the University of Tennessee. I have the great privilege of teaching primarily in our clinical program, which means that I represent clients along with my students every day and also teach some other stuff. Um, I specialize in social welfare policy and poverty policy and what we call the criminalization of poverty. And next summer, I have a book coming out from Cambridge University Press called Prosecuting Poverty, Criminalizing Care. So, Wendy, big picture, what makes the child tax credit so special? And what makes it a notably new approach to supporting families? I would call the expanded child tax credit really revolutionary in American social welfare policy. And the reason simply is universality. This is a cash benefit delivered in the same amount, in the same way to families along nearly the entire US income spectrum, from families with no income at all to married couples earning over $150,000. Although policies like this are quite, quite common in other Western democracies, the US has very, very few universal benefits. Instead, as a practical matter, the United States is strange and unique in that it really has three benefit systems that break down almost precisely by income level. So we have what I like to call welfare for the wealthy, benefits at the top, delivered mostly through tax expenditures, through the tax code. We have benefits across the board just for the elderly, Social Security and Medicare. And then we have benefits at the bottom that are means tested. And I think we're gonna talk a bunch about those and the differences in those. But the child tax credit is joining Social Security and Medicare as a universal benefit. And that's really extraordinary for American social welfare policy. That's super cool. So um, you described the universal benefits that we have for uh, old people, but can you, <laughs> can you describe um, some of the benefits, uh, some of the welfare for, for the wealthy? Like what, sure. what are some great examples of that? So we spent in 2019, $1.3 trillion um, on something we call tax expenditures. And these are benefits through the tax code for social welfare purposes. The ones that we're most familiar with and the ones that are super expensive are the home mortgage interest deduction. That's an extremely valuable deduction that goes predominantly to the very top of our income distribution. And the it's other a, one- It's what? about a hundred billion a year, isn't it? Right, I think it is, yes. Yeah. Um, and then- the exclusion for, for employer paid health insurance is another enormously valuable benefit that goes disproportionately to the wealthy. So that's welfare for the wealthy. And the funny thing about those benefits, and the CTC is a little different than this, but most of those benefits are really invisible. So invisible that 
a lot of folks don't even know they're getting welfare when they get them. If you ask them if they get government benefits, they will say no, despite the fact that they're getting dollars in hand from the government through these tax expenditures. The CTC is a little different because it's a little more visible. It's going into bank accounts. It's coming with a letter from the president explaining what it is. So people are experiencing perhaps the CTC a little differently because it's like the pandemic benefits visible to folks who are receiving it. And from my perspective, that's a good thing. Yeah. And, and people didn't have to apply for it. If no. they were already filing their taxes, this is coming automatically. So in the vast majority of circumstances, that's right. So right. if you filed in 19 or 20 and you have well, who, a child who would now be a dependent child, or if you filed for pandemic-related emergency benefits, you're going to get it either direct deposit in your bank account or check in the mail. There are about 4 million families that don't that qualify for the expanded CTC, but don't fall into that category. And we're having to do a little work to get those guys into the program. But other than those 4 million people, and that's a significant number, but other than those 4 million people, everyone's getting it pretty automatically at this point. Do you recall how much this benefit is costing annually? So all told, it's about $110 billion being pumped into local economies through this benefit. That's great. So how will it impact people's lives? I like to think about benefits like this in two ways, right? There are benefits to the family today and the kids today. And then there's the long-term benefits to kids if they get economic support during their childhood. Right. And we know different things about both of those things. And the news is really good on both those fronts for benefits like that. For the short term, what's it gonna do today? The study I look to, like to look at is one that just came out recently about the Stockton Economic Empowerment Demonstration Project. This was a $500 a month payment to 125 residents of Stockton, California, who lived in a neighborhood with a median income at about $46,000 a year. And it was a, an experiment, right? There was a treatment group and a control group with similar characteristics. And the 500 is a good look, number to look at because that's what a single parent household with two kids over five are going to get under the CTC. So they had some really, really interesting findings after this started about a year out. Um, the first, and this is a finding I don't think we need. I think we should assume that poor people, like most other people are gonna make good choices with their money and we know they do, but lots of people think they don't. So yeah. just in case we need to know this, um, folks in the Stockton experiment spent their money on basic needs. The largest spending was on food, utilities, auto care and transportation. Less than 1% was spent on tobacco and alcohol. So folks are making good economic choices. Again, I don't really understand why we think they wouldn't, but there you go. But in terms of how cash in hand affected them, there were really, really interesting positive findings. It affected their time. And that's really important, right? So poverty creates stress, creates time crunches, right? You're constantly looking for short-term employment, unstable employment. So that little bit of financial input alleviated stress and created time, time to spend time with children, time to invest in themselves, do training program, there was a decrease in what the researchers called forced vulnerability, right? Having to depend on other networks for basic needs. 
there was less income volatility. They were better positioned over time to handle a $400 emergency expense with cash on hand, as opposed to by borrowing the money or taking away from some other bill. There were lower incidents of anxiety and depression, statistically significant improvements in mental health. And I think the kicker, the full-time employment moved from 28% at the start of the experiment to 40% full-time employment a year later. These are all good short-term outcomes that we can expect to see. Long-term, how are the kids gonna do? The news is also very good. We know that cash and near cash benefits into a family during childhood materially improves the children's outcomes as adults. Higher education, higher earnings, increased life expectancy, better mental health, improved intergenerational mobility. So cash in hand to families is just gonna do a lot of good. So you study the differences between systems of support and care versus systems of punishment. Yes. So can you talk about our general approach to child and family poverty, how that aid can be viewed in that framework and where the child tax credit falls on that spectrum? Sure. So just a little definition before I launch into this. So when I think about systems of care, it's really broad right, cash and near cash benefits of the kind we've been talking about and other forms of support, medical and mental health care, social work, the like. Um, Systems of punishment, right, when I think about it, I'm talking about child welfare and criminal system actors, police prosecutors, probation, jail, prison, things like that. So the reality in most mean tested benefits and in poor communities overall is that Those two systems, right, the systems that we set up allegedly to help families and the systems that can take away your kids and throw you in jail are deeply, deeply intertwined. And often asking for help exposes you to possible loss, child welfare intervention, and possible loss of your kids or intervention in how you're living your family life and possible police involvement and additional criminal involvement. Um, and I, I, you know, I don't think, I think this is very, very hard to imagine if you're, you, you don't practice in those communities, you're not working in those communities or you haven't lived in those communities. And I think the best way to understand the differences between these two systems is to think about how it happens at the top and how it happens at the bottom. So let's take housing, okay? Welfare for the wealthy, we already talked about this. The home mortgage interest deduction is a substantial benefit for wealthy families to support their housing needs. On the bottom, we put some money into supporting housing, predominantly through public housing in the Section 8 program. When you apply for something like Section 8 or public housing, you're going to have an in-person interview, you're going to have potentially work or volunteer requirements, you might be drug tested, you're going to sign a consent form allowing them to see all kinds of records about you and your family, you could lose that housing for failing to comply with a vast number of both behavioral requirements and documentation requirements. You're constantly being asked to recertify, to reproduce paperwork, and you know, focusing really on the, on the presence of government officials in your home through home inspections, anything they see 
right? That makes them worry about the safety of your children. And it could be no food in your refrigerator, right? Because you don't have enough money. So you're applying for assistance to get food in your refrigerator, but you can end up with a child welfare referral. So now think about that and then think about receiving the home mortgage interest deduction. And imagine that before you get your home mortgage interest deduction, somebody's like, well, sorry, Goldie, you really just have to pee in this cup first. And you know what? Sorry, it might've been a mistake, but it's green positive for this drug. So to get your home mortgage interest deduction, you're gonna have to go into this drug treatment program. And if you don't, we're gonna take away your benefit, right? So that's how different it is. And that's the experience of most means tested benefits and poverty systems in poor communities is that there's this constant humiliation and scrutiny and threat. Um, the CTC is not like that, it's much more as we talked about, more like the tax expenditures or social security, right? separate from that, which is one of the things that makes it so good. Um, but I don't think people can really imagine how different these things are unless you've been close to them in some way. And let's be clear, that example you use, let's say for, for housing vouchers, uh, Section 8 vouchers, uh, yeah. it's not just Section 8, you've got to go through the same hoops uh, when you're applying for Medicaid, but it's a different agency. The, yes. the, the same hoops uh, if you are applying for, uh, for SNAP, for food stamps, but it's a separate agency. So you <laughs> might not have food in the fridge because you got some snag in the paper, paperwork on the food stamps. And then when they inspect your house because you're applying for the, the you're getting the housing vouchers, they see there's no food. And that's when they call Child Protective Services and put your kids in foster care because you couldn't get the paperwork right. Whereas I can tell you from experience that getting that home mortgage interest deduction was, well, there's this, this number that my bank sent me and I plug that into uh, one line on my tax return. Right, right. That's no, that's, that, that is exactly how different it is. And everything that you just talk about is worse if you're a person of color, if you're African-American than if you are white, right? So all these referral rates are gonna be worse if you're black or brown and American than if you're white. Right, even if you're white and poor, although the experience of being white and poor is quite awful as well. And you know, I think talking about race for a moment, a story about this that is even more extreme, but happened in California, I think it was in around 2007, as prices in white suburbs started to drop for housing, African-American families with Section 8 vouchers, which are housing vouchers that are mobile, you can go and use the subsidy to rent an apartment as opposed to public housing where you're living where the subsidy is. African-American families started to rent houses in white communities outside of Los Angeles and the police departments formed Section 8 task forces that included both at times police, juvenile justice and child welfare officials to police black section eight families trying to get their benefits taken away, but they were going in and inspecting right. those households with police forces. 
So the amount of criminalization and policing of the experience of poverty that's connected to benefit receipt is intimately tied to our history of racial subordination and our ongoing practices of racial subordination. So in this case, our, our public uh, support and care systems and our penal systems and, ju- and criminal justice systems are very much alike in, in that they are applied unevenly uh, based on race. <laughs> yes, absolutely. God, that is shocking. Uh, it's just terrible. Is it? Is it, Nick? Is it shocking? <laughs> shocking. I mean, it's terrible, but does it actually surprise no. you? No, of course not. But it's just like you just hear about this stuff and you're just like, boy. Yeah. Well, this yeah. gets this gets to something, and it's a little bit of a a sore point on our podcast because uh, we're not necessarily we're we're we are. I'm, I'm going to bring up the UBI, <laughs> those three <laughs> letters, Nick, uh, yeah. which we have not overt. We're skeptics. We've been UBI skeptics, though. I have to say that the pandemic relief over the past year and a half, and this expanded child tax credit uh, is making me less skeptical. Is this, is is the child tax credit like a first step towards a universal basic income? I, I fear to talk about the UBI with the two of you, frankly, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> but so let me say, for me, when it comes to the UBI, the devil's in the details, as frankly does right. The devil is in the details as to child allowances, right? Because when you say to me, we're going to build cash support on top of our pre-existing safety net, we're going to give folks cash. And hopefully our safety net won't have as much work to do because we're going to raise the income and prospects of families through some sort of a universal benefit. Then- I'm okay with that, right? Mm-hmm. In fact, I can be enthusiast. But when we start saying like, oh, we'll just take all the money that we spend right. on food stamps and Medicaid and homeless assistance and mental health and God only knows what, and we'll all drop it into UBI and cross our fingers, then I'm very worried. I think we always need a safety net. I think that there will always be folks who are in crisis in some way. And for us to abandon that safety net is a mistake, right? Mm-hmm. It, you know, in the sort of absent politics, I think that's a mistake. And I also think a UBI is a, it's a harder sell than a child benefit because it's not about kids, right? But then we're talking about adults single adults. Yeah. But I do think we are in a very interesting moment post-pandemic benefits, I think as the ACA benefits, the Affordable Care Act benefits became clearer. And as people started to think about what it might mean to lose those deeply convoluted, but still quasi-universal benefits. And as people experienced the government doing something good through the pandemic, right? That cash actually helped. And it was visibly from the government that it came. And the CTC, we might be entering a world where people can imagine that government can be good and can support. That's good news. You know, just to refresh your memory, there's a couple of reasons why we're not big UBI fans. The, the first is that there's a lot of evidence to suggest that 
things like the EITC are mostly um, subsidies, not for the people who, who get them, but for the companies who employ them at low wages. Yes. That these benefits provide uh, effectively an excuse for companies to pay people less than they need to get by without right. benefits. And there is no earthly reason why every company in America can't pay people enough to not need public benefits. They just prefer not to. And we have built a both a culture and a policy framework that supports that, that exploitive behavior. Yeah. And, and you could just make it all go away with the stroke of a pen. You could just raise the minimum wage to a level that required companies to pay people enough to get by without food stamps. And then that their need for those things would go go away and there'd be a bunch of sad people on Wall Street, but you know, we would get by that. Yeah. That's the thing about the economy is that it, it could pay people enough, it just chooses not to. And so these programs effectively, you know, they're just an excuse not to do the right thing. But yeah. at the same time, I really, I, I think the child tax credit is a really great idea. And I think we're in violent agreement with you that it's a positive <laughs> and that um, the universality of it is its best feature, right? That ever, effectively everybody gets it or most people get it and it benefits people a lot. And if that's the way we get to an economy that isn't, that doesn't take such huge advantage of poor people um, and vulnerable people, well then, you know, we're all for it. I mean, that's the complication, right? So that example we were talking about Right? It is utterly fathomable in America to do horrible things in our government programs to poor people. And it is utterly unfathomable in our in the American context to do the same thing to rich people. Right. So in what Derek Bell calls interest interest convergence, you kind of have to give the benefits to people up the income scale in order to politically justify it being as administered in a way that is as kind and generous as the CTC is for all but those 4 million or so families. Yeah, I do love the idea of drug testing every single person who gets the mortgage interest <laughs> deduction. Uh, I think you and me a, both. I've I got no traction a, on well, this idea. Though. Fantastic well, <laughs> idea. I just, uh, well, you know, well, and have somebody come to your house and look around and make sure you're not doing anything bad. Uh, and, that's just. And by the way, they're going to arrest you if your kids skip school as a condition yeah. of the benefit too, yeah. just for fun. All that. All that. Yeah. Do you think we have a shot at making it permanent? So I'm not a political academic, right? <laughs> I'm yeah. not, right? I don't study politics in that way. So now you're getting Wendy's lay yep. opinion as to yeah. that question. But I do think pandemic-related benefits have changed the conversation. I think people have experienced government giving them money that helps them to live a little bit better. And I also think that, much to the chagrin of Republicans, something like the Affordable Care Act has done that work as well. The Affordable Care Act was and remains incredibly bureaucratically complicated, so it's less clear, but nevertheless, lots of people benefited from it. And when folks started to make noise about taking it away, all of a sudden that wasn't really 
popular. So I think we are making progress on this idea that base level benefits can make a difference in people's lives. And I think it'll be popular. And I think they're super smart to be doing it in such a visible way. Yeah. Right. The letter from Joe Biden. Right. People know they're going to get it. And people don't like it when you take things away. It's like Social Security. So I've got my fingers crossed and I have some tea leaves that are making me happy is what I would say. If it was you, what policies would you pair with the child tax credit in the future to create a more comprehensive approach to child and family welfare? I think we need we need a safety net. There are very few programs I would do away with. I think we need a series of universal benefits. The child tax credit is a form of child allowance. That's fantastic. I think we need subsidized high quality child care. Um, I think we need universal pre-K. We need universal health care. In saying all of this, I'm leaving aside all the sort of labor market side interventions. I'll leave that to you guys to have a wish list of Um, I'm really intrigued by programs like baby bonds um, because I think they take a chunk out of wealth inequality in an interesting way. Um, But what I want to say is that I don't care just about programs of support and how much they're worth, although I care a heck of a lot about that. But I really care about how we administer it. Right. Right. I really care that we do it in a way that's autonomy enhancing, that's respectful, that's easy, that promotes the ability of the ability of individuals to manage their own priorities and decide what they need to spend their money on. And more structurally, I think we need to vastly grow systems of support shrink systems of punishment and crucially, crucially, crucially separate systems of support or care from systems of punishment. You know, poor people are not stupid. They know that accessing support makes them vulnerable to punishment because it does. So we need to restructure those systems so that one isn't linked to the other. So you don't have to make a choice between getting basic support that you need and facing the possibility of child welfare intervention or prosecution. So I want all those benefits and I want us to really grow care and separate care from punishment. Uh, Annie Lowry had an excellent piece in The Atlantic in which she described our current benefit system, Mm -hmm. the the effort to navigate it as a time tax. Uh, But I think what you add to that conversation, which a lot of people don't think about is, is just how punitive the current benefit system is the way it's administered right now. It's, you know, inhumane in a sense. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the, the programs that are supposed to be humane end up dehumanizing people in a way that just, even if, even if it was efficient, it's just not, it's, it's just not the way to do this. Yeah. That's from Can a moral it- perspective. Goldie, I wanted to go back to the Annie Lowry point because I totally agree with you about what what we've been talking about and what I study adds. But I think my scholarship adds one more thing because when I talk about criminalization of these systems, right, it's not only that the experience is punitive and horrible, it's the exposure to punishment. right. 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 So... Another thing, and this is when we're talking about my book, right? One of the, the topic of the book or the case study in the book is about 
um, pregnant women who were prosecuted for fetal assault. And so those women for what? prosecuted- What's so fetal, fetal assault? Um, in utero drug exposure. Oh, okay. So they were prosecuted for fetal assault. So these folks go to a healthcare provider, to a hospital, and lo and behold, the statements they made to nurses, to doctors in the hospital end up in the criminal complaint against them. So I am going seeking healthcare, right? And the very information I disclose to this purportedly trusted healthcare provider is being used to prosecute me and to take away my children. Right. So it, there's yeah. a time tax, there's a humiliation, there's, there's sort of punishment systems in the sense of it's a horrible, stigmatizing, miserable experience, but it's also like actually dangerous. <sighs> I'm just the happy good news lady. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. We, you know, it's not like we don't know in general how horrible our system is, but not having gone through it ourselves. Yeah. yeah. Um, you, you can't know the particulars. And of yeah. course, that's a, that's a particularly terrible example because of course, uh, as a pregnant mother, you want to tell the doctors and nurses the truth about your health. It's in the interest of the baby. That's what, you, that's what you want to be honest with your doctor. And we totally, and then we prosecute you for it, for doing Correct. the right thing for the baby. Right. And we want you to tell your doctor that, right? Like we want yeah. you, right? That's what HIPAA is supposed to do. But for a variety of complicated legal reasons, that's, and not so legal reasons, that's not what happened. So, so I guess the takeaway is child tax credit. Great. A uh, lot more work to do. I think that's a fair takeaway. <laughs> I love okay. it. F final question, Nick. Yeah. So Wendy, why do you do this work? <laughs> so I could tell you a sort of like, post-Holocaust immigrant Jewish family story, but I won't go that far back. But yeah, that's I, all of us. Yeah, that's all I figured <laughs> yeah. with your name. Uh, but, but, you know, I graduated from a fancy college, went to work in a women's shelter, saw all kinds of things that I had no idea were true. Some of the things we're talking about. So I get into law school. And I graduated from law school in May of 1996. In August of 1996, Bill Clinton signs the Personal Responsibility Act and eliminates welfare. Um, and in September, I started the Legal Aid Society in Brooklyn, working, doing eviction defense. And between that day and today, 25 years later, um, for about 10 years as a practicing lawyer and for the rest of the time as a law professor teaching in a legal clinic setting, I've stood next to clients who have experienced these systems. And that's been a great privilege in my life. But what I've seen is what we've been talking about. And it became very clear to me that this is how it works very early on in my career. So when I became an academic and thought about what I wanted to spend my time researching, writing about, telling that story seemed like a, a good use of my fairly wonky skills. Yeah, it's an amazing story. And it's an amazing fact that because powerful people are completely insulated from the reality of these systems, mm -hmm. they're just invisible, right? I mean, yeah, 
you know, they just yeah. on paper, I'm sure they seemed sensible to someone at the time. Uh, but because, you know, virtually no one in our political system or in our power structure has ever had to fight through uh, this nonsense that, you know, it just remains invisible and ignored and, so, and you know, frankly, supported. Yeah. Right. right. Wow. It also serves lots of people's interests to do yeah, this. Yeah, of course way. it does. Right. Yeah. I am not yeah. a believer yeah. that this stuff happens by accident. I think no. systems function the way they're supposed to. Yeah. And that's a sad fact about what we think about poor people and, and what we think about race in this country. Yeah. Well, there you have it. This was fun, you guys. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, absolutely fantastic conversation. Thank you you so much for doing it. And for sure, we'd love to have you back when when your book comes out. Awesome. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. My name is Lupe Mendoza. I live in Walla Walla, Washington. I am a single mother to five boys. Four of them currently um, still live at home, the oldest 21 and the youngest eight. For work, I am a family support specialist with the ECAP preschool program, a state-funded preschool program for kiddos ages three and four, and it is an income-based program. I work with a caseload of 40 families when my program is fully enrolled. I help navigate families to any type of Um, resource that we have in the community, and that can be from electric help, rent help, food bank, getting pampers, hygiene stuff, you name it. What it was like for my family when the pandemic first hit, um, it was complete shambles and chaos, trying to navigate three different grades and sitting down and helping them do their work was extremely hard. We were literally, I would work my full day on a computer at the table, have my kiddos doing their school online. And then I would sit down and try to help them. Not only that, just mentally exhausting for myself as a single parent. Um, I do have an amazing support group, but it was really hard. So during the pandemic, my household changes really skyrocketed. My grocery bill, which it normally averages out with, you know, to anywhere from four to $500 a month. Um, Because I have boys and they eat me out of house and home. Um, That nearly tripled. There was some months that I did have to say, I can't pay this bill because we need food. I mean, it literally felt like we had 20 lunches, 20 dinners. And then in between there, it was like 90 snacks a day. It was constantly a battle. And, you know, when I'm in the midst of working, yes, I'm home, but it was still hard to navigate. Like, no, you can't go to the kitchen. And yes, we had rules. Yes, there was boundaries, but they're boys. They know how to sneak stuff. Our electric bill doubled because now there is five of us full-time on computers, eight hours a day, which that was not, you know, there before the electric used to, everything was shut off when we were gone during the day. The heat bill, I mean, all my bills went up just because we were using them twice as much the way I made up the difference. And as my job, I have to know every single resource. So I knew the resources and I knew that there was like, you know, they couldn't cut off my electric bill or, you know, my gas if I needed it. So I would have to make that choice to sacrifice. Well, do I not pay that bill this month and put more food in, you know, into the home or do I not? 
and then end up using a resource as far as going to the food bank. So I would choose to not pay that bill one month and be able to put that extra food, you know, in the home to have. That is what worked. That is how I had to manage and to keep stability and things the same and not allow my kids to know that we were struggling or that it was difficult for us. I needed to keep normalcy for them. When I first heard I was receiving the child tax credit, it was a sigh of relief for me because it was in the middle of having to move and my finances were already tight as it is um, because as I'm juggling the bills, I'm still playing catch up. I was like, oh, okay, like that is going to help with the gas back and forth. That is going to help me with the U-Haul rental. Like now I can afford it. And I, you know, didn't have to ask my mom to borrow the money because um, that was like my last resort. So it was a sigh of relief for me, just a little breather. Um, so half the money went to moving expenses. And then the other half, I bought my two younger boys um, more clothing because they just obviously expanded both sideways and long ways. And they had outgrown all their clothes. So we had no choice to, but to, you know, spend that extra money. I didn't want to count on it. Like I didn't want to say, oh, I have the $750 coming. Like that is going to make things easier for me. And like it came through when I, you know, when we really needed it the most. I would explain the importance of the, the expanded child tax credit to somebody is that it comes when you least expect it and it comes when you need it the most. And that can look very different for every family situation. And it may be just that little bit that you need to top off whatever bill you have, or, you know, it may even be a tiny little trip that you have not been able to take all year or all summer. That credit is just, it is really important because it's very individual for every family. Our needs look totally different. It's from putting that extra food on your table to paying that extra bill. And, you know, it can look many, many different ways, but it is a huge stress reliever. It just, I always have anxiety. I always have stress, but it is just that extra like breather that I can take. I honestly, you know, I feel like I'm pretty well acquainted with the time tax stuff that Annie Lowry talks about in her Atlantic article, because uh, as I may have mentioned on the podcast before, you know, one of the things that my family does, uh, my wife mostly, is she assists, uh, she directly assists, uh, uh, you know, a, a low-income family and sort of as a mentor to the mom and helps her navigate these systems. And, it, it, and they are horrendous. I mean, it's just, it's just astonishing how hard it is to be poor, right? How difficult the systems are, how contradictory, difficult to navigate. You know, you get a system, one of these things in place, and then God forbid you get a job and they take them all away. I mean, the whole thing is just a mess. But I had never really been exposed to the whole criminalization part of it, right? right. These legal hurdles that are put in place that put you in jeopardy for, frankly, doing things that either your poverty makes necessary, right? That, that, you know, like not having enough food around for your kids, which is one of the consequences of poverty, or doing things that everyone else in the society does with impunity, like smoking pot or whatever it is, 
or drinking or, you know, doing, doing, doing the sort of things that rich people do all the time and don't ever get pressed on. So that was, that was really interesting and really worth understanding better. It's very easy for a streak of bad luck to turn into uh, suddenly finding yourself uh, uh, food insecure or housing insecure or, or homeless. And that's why it was so important uh, during COVID that we passed these relief packages that were rather extraordinary uh, in terms of the past 40, 50, 60 years but which prevented so much misery, not to mention kept the, the economy afloat. Absolutely. I mean, to be clear, the child tax credit is a great victory for most families and a great victory for government and, um, uh, and is, you know, cause to celebrate. And uh, I think we all need to work hard to ensure that it continues, that it becomes a permanent benefit for families which I think would make a big difference to a huge number of people. Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action and Nick Hanauer. Follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunkworks and peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. As always, from our team at Civic Ventures, thanks for listening. See you next week.